Welcome to Mud79. I'm Fearless Fred Kennedy, the creator of this totally original and in no way authorized Star Wars fan fiction podcast. If you're listening to this, there's a good chance that you love Star Wars. Well, I love it too. And I've always wanted to tell my own story in a galaxy far, far away. A story that's less about Skywalkers and more about those who were on the front lines. Uh boots-on-the-ground story about how those living in the galaxy survive the horrors of war. That's what Mud 79 is all about. If you are new to the show, welcome, but please be aware this is a series. So if you don't want to be totally lost, start from the beginning with episode one. You don't want to be a stormtrooper. This is episode two, The Sigil. Solomon Kwai and the Mudders from Platoon 79 respond to a distress call from a local mining encampment and come under fire as a group of bandits make off with a valuable shipment of Kenyan ore. How will Imperial Command react? Were the miners in on it? And what happened to Squad 1's downed lardy? Let's find out. So, that was it. We moved out. We were still in sight of the mine when one of our transports took off and made for Camp Fibus. Turns out the Kenyan at the mine site was deemed so valuable, the Empire opted to just take it off their hands right then and there. That's why we were tracking the enemy on foot. The Kenyan needed to get back to Camp Vibus. It was a great reminder of how important we were. We marched in our column formation, allowing us to spread cover fire easy if needed. If we were attacked from any direction, we'd be moderately secure and spread out. We were split into three clusters of soldiers. Each squad was a cluster, and the three of us moved in sequence, each group moving ahead in their own formation to maintain fire superiority. Think of it like Leapfrog with groups of 15 soldiers at a time. This way, we went in stages and kept track of where everyone was. I was on point for our squad, center front, my eyes darting like an over-medicated toddler. I was so nervous. I bounced back and forth from not wanting to get shot to not wanting to fall out of formation and piss off the LT. The only constant was the rain. We just moved the line forward when I saw a freshly rolled ground transport up ahead. I dropped to my knee and put up my hand. All squads stopped. Then the LT lit up the comms. Two and three, close on the transport. Four, hold position. The other two squads hopped past while we laid low. I raised my rifle and primed the chamber. Squad two got in position about a hundred meters from the target and the bushes to the left of it lit up with blaster fire. I saw two of our soldiers drop. The LT moved forward, fired right on target at a full sprint. With that accuracy, it was as if he was on the range, not in combat, and Squad 2 was right on his tail. I will always argue that he scored a hit with his first shot, because it felt like the heat melted as soon as he advanced. Then Gentala came in on the comms. 
four, close flank and engage. We hustled along, moving quickly, staying under what little cover we had. I came to a slight rise on the ground and hit the deck. I popped my head up and saw the enemy from the side. I didn't get a good look at them individually, but I saw their position. It was just over 25 meters from me. I popped up and fired. Took a few steps forward, and my whole world went white. I was flat on my back, the world fading back into focus, and Staven stooped low beside me. She kicked me in the side. Get the fuck up, Kwai! Blaster fire was coming in spurts. I'd only been down for a second or two. I got up and fell into position, not really thinking about what had just happened. I reacted automatically. My best chance of not dying here was knowing my role, and I leaned into the training like it was second nature. I was moving on instinct alone. And we were so coordinated. Cover. Fire. Move. Cover. Fire. Move. Wait. Enemy returns fire. Move again. Hold. Reload. He's low! You always wanted to have a full clip handy. Fire. Advance. Hold. Cover. Fire again. Don't mistake what I'm saying here. This wasn't a walk in the park. There was a hostile force in hiding, defending their position, doing their best to kill us. But in the moment, it felt like another simulation. We were trained to react without thinking or hesitating. Our advance, the coordinated counterattack, was a reaction. And that is what kept us from being terrified. Then they're out! I heard Altherium shout as he threw it. He was a crack shot with those things. We would gamble on his tosses at the range, so it wasn't a surprise that he was lobbing bombs during our first contact. And again, he dropped them perfectly in the pocket. There had to be at least four raiders, maybe six. Based on the pattern they were firing from, you could tell. And they burned through a lot of ammo. These guerrillas, or loyalists, whatever you wanted to call them, were well equipped. They had powerful blaster rifles with minimal deviation at range. Military grade stuff. Sounded a bit like an E-22. They were well situated also. They hid behind a few boulders with ample vegetation covering their movement. They'd clearly dug down a bit for a bit more cover. And they were up on a slight hill, laying down a wide plane of fire across an area with minimal protection. All in all, this was a textbook ambush. But our formation was designed to minimize casualties. None of us were clustered together, and once they were flanked and the detonators went off, it was a done deal. Squad 3 was on them like a sledgehammer. It was the LT that went over first, followed by their squad sergeant, Tobla. He was quick and strong, like a Kadu, but with a blaster rifle. It was all over shockingly fast. The detonators killed at least one, no doubt wounding or distracting the rest. The others were killed by blaster fire when Squad 3 made contact. The only one who had time to even react audibly was a female Twi'lek. She was killed when Tobla crushed her head with the butt end of his rifle. I saw it happen. As she shuffled backwards, she drew a vibro knife with a garbled yell. 
defiant to her last breath. I had a shot, but I didn't want to open fire. It was too close to one of our own. When the sergeant moved in with the blaster rifle, that was it. In total, there were six of them. A Twi'lek, two Verks, and three humans. They had modified E-22 blaster rifles, Republic service. Like I said, nice gear for a pack of bandits. When we inspected the ground transport, one of our privates set off a trip sensor, and a blast from a hidden charge ripped him in half. It also took out two other squad mates. They were in a bad way, but mobile. The other two who dropped in the initial barrage were also okay, just rattled. Plastoid armor saved their lives. This whole ambush was a diversion. They were just buying time so the rest of them could escape with the hall. Probably just expected the miners to come this way, because there's no way this was meant to stop us. LT told us to drop and secure, establish a perimeter, and charge whatever clips needed charging. He hauled the comms guy, Murray, over and got on the line. It was a heated discussion. Murray filled us in on the details after. Command ordered we find the hall. The Kenyan was vitally important. The wounded were secondary. We could come back for them when the mission was complete. And that didn't sit well with Orto. See, clones are a pack animal. They don't leave their own. It was how they were bred. In Imperial eyes, that was a weakness. The mission was always primary. Casualties were merely an obstacle to overcome. And while that conversation with command was happening, I held my position and scanned the woods in the distance. My knee dropped in a puddle that was unavoidable and getting deeper by the minute. I just saw the LT dismiss Murray and call the sergeants over. I held on to the hope that we'd be going back to camp and that everything was over. There was no training for dealing with the downtime. Gentala came over the comms. We're moving on to the primary target to reacquire the stolen Kenyan. Private Mahandai of Squad 2 will return to the mine and arrange for evac of the wounded. We move in 10 minutes. I advise you to hydrate. Over. When I heard we were sending a runner back to the mine, I looked over at Tolan and he had the same confused look I did. We made brief eye contact and I whipped off my sack and grabbed a PNR, personal nutrition rod. See. Both of us knew, we all knew, that tending wounded was contrary to protocol. Corporal Husto was making his rounds, ensuring we were all combat ready. When he got to me, his eyes lit up. You alright, Kwai? Take your helmet off recently? I didn't know why he was so amused. Then I realized there was a gouge along the top right of my helmet. Two or three inches closer and my skull would have been misted. The scoring went all the way to the insulation, which had melted into my hair. Husto was laughing as he snipped it off my head. He tossed it onto some mud and had his usual wry response when I asked what I was supposed to do for headgear. Kipti won't be needing a helmet anymore. Take his. He pointed at the dead body. Just clean it out first. Bedside manner like a pile of bantha shit. I did take the helmet, by the way. I'm glad they chose Mondahai as a runner to head back to the mine. She was a good choice, and she was an unreal Limmy player. Not much on the physical side of play, but she had moves. 
and was a real pain in the ass to defend when she went wide. The rest of us gathered the wounded near what was left of the transport to give them some shelter from the rain, then we moved on. Mondahai had already left for the mine before we were done. The good news was that Command had updated our map data from orbit. The Kenyan was now stationary and a mere four clicks away. The challenge was that it was at a significantly higher altitude, meaning uphill the whole way through ever-increasing undergrowth. The rain was dying down now as the sky lit up. There were still a few hours before dark and we had a long walk ahead. The terrain was a lot worse than before. It was more uneven and there was mud everywhere. It sucked into your feet and made for tough going. We moved from our columns to a file formation, which is just a fancy way of saying we were in a line. The forest closed in around us as we kept moving. The uphill walk was more like climbing a giant set of stairs covered in slime. Everything was so goddamn slippery. As soon as you'd sling your rifle to climb, your brain would chirp in. Hey buddy, this is where I'd lay a trap, so that's probably what's gonna happen. You're gonna get shot and slam into a few rocks before you hit the ground. Find cover. It was Orto on the comms channel. I dropped low and cinched in below a photos palm. Everything was quiet. The way he spoke made me think a few dropships were about to lay down a wave of blaster fire, but nothing. I glanced back down the line. There were a few stragglers that hadn't peeked over the last ridge, but I saw Staven a few meters back. She tapped her nose and nudged her chin forward. I looked back the way we were headed. I couldn't see anything past a low, jagged cliff face. A few vines had taken hold and were withering along its surface. I was following them when I caught it. A slight whiff of generator exhaust. Vapor would be a more accurate term. Most onboard ship generators give off vapor, but it's vented outward so you never smell it except when you're on a landing platform and get too close. But there was definitely a ship generator. I could smell it. The sergeant squawked in over the radio. Squad 4, protocol ghost magic. Positions Echo 478, Lambada 893. Ghost magic meant you didn't make a goddamn sound. You moved as quiet as possible, like a loth cat with feet made of clouds. We were already close to the designated position, but it took me four minutes to crawl there. I was on my belly, wiggling along the undergrowth, and I was momentarily grateful for how slimy this place was, because it made it easier to move along. Then I saw a figure up ahead, and I moved a lot slower. It was Jintala. She motioned me to move left, and there was a pile of rubble next to a mossy boulder. It was partially hidden beneath roots from a shoot tree. Loads of cover. Ethereum was behind me less than a minute later. We were splitting left and right, Gentala giving us signs. One by one we took posts, evenly spaced, just like the drills. I looked back at the sergeant. She signaled again. We were to hold here. Assume fire superiority. Protect the other two squads as they advanced. When we were signaled by the LT, we joined the assault. The raider camp was below us. It was silent, save the hum of the generator and some interspersed conversation. 
I didn't recognize the language. It sounded a bit like basic, but might have been something else with a few basic words thrown in. From behind the boulder, I had a full line of sight on the lower half of the camp. To my right was a tower with a swivel-mounted quad cannon. The thing looked like what you'd find in a starship gunport. Penetrative power that'd hammer into TX-200 armor. And there were people up there, two of them. A big-ass human wearing some sort of reactive plate armor and a Weequay with a DLT-20A sniper rifle. Had a custom scope on it, too. That was more former Republic gear. These guys meant business. Right below was the generator. Looked like it had been ripped right out of a transport. That's where the smell came from. Must have hung in the valley. No, there was an exhaust shaft that ran up along the cliff face. Power cabling all over, too. It wrapped around the leg of that tower. That's where the quad cannon was getting its juice. This place was dug in. It was a great spot to raid from, and it had been there for a while. Hard to find. There was a landing pad for small freighters. There was a cave on my left, which was near our side. It meant we needed to keep whatever was inside, inside. No way of knowing how deep it went either. Hopefully not too far. There was another power line running into it from the generator. Heavy grade cable, thick as my arm. Made me wonder what would need that much power. I took a good look around, found choke points, anything to keep these guys down when needed. And you know, for all its Hidden Valley bullshit, and easy as it was to hide, this was a really awful place to defend. If we held that cave entrance, kept it all in check, the only real sticking point was gonna be that tower. The comms clicked, and then a whisper. Secure fire zones. The LT was counting us in. I took a closer look, eyed my sector, the raiders, sized them up, who'd be trouble, who'd piss themselves. There were a few Twilik, more Verk, those guys. Just vicious, best to kill them quick. Most of them had DC-15 blaster rifles. They were stocked, precise. Fire in three. The first Verk. I take him, the tall one. Then the other one, the guy with the blue pants. Two. Then that human with the pistols. He has a ponytail. Ridiculous. One. That blue Twilik. Why do the males always look so weird? Fire. We lit that place up. They had no clue. I got my first kill. That tall Verk, I hit him twice. I missed my next two targets, but I changed clips within the first minute. I'd never shot like that before. I was so jumpy I couldn't help it. Gun kept kicking up. I needed to breathe, calm down, but everyone was shooting off. We laid waste to those raider pricks. Come into our house? Take our shit? Fuck no! We're the fucking Empire. Then that quad cannon lit up. I felt it. It was a solid 20 meters away, and I felt the fucking thing. 
Those warm shots of air. They came in these little weird jumplets. It was like a stuttering fan. And it kicked things up. The blaster fire was nothing next to the juice this thing was pushing out. It ripped into squad two. Blood, dirt, green flakes of shit. Just a mess. They were tucked in though, sticking to cover which slowed Squad 3 from advancing, too. I wasn't even firing at this point. I was out of my zone, just gazing off at what was happening like an idiot. Saw the guy on the quad cannon, the human, beefy guy, his armor taking shots for him. No emotion, just cashing his check. Then he had his head misted. Shot came from the far bushes, Squad 3 sector. Then below, the LT leapt up from the side of the ridge and started climbing up the goddamn tower. It was like something out of a Holonet show. I grew up watching clones and propaganda ads, always defying the odds. And here I was, seeing the whole thing in person, while being shot at. The Weequay up there got wise and he moved over to put the lieutenant down and avoid getting picked off himself, but... Then he was shredded like paper in a hailstorm. Kator, the heavy gunner from 3rd Squad, came out of the bush firing a fully spun Z6. That guy was a machine. He was just fully exposed on the ridge letting loose on the enemy. I got knocked back into reality as the root beside me splintered, taking part of my cheek with it. I pushed out and returned fire in my sector. More raiders were coming from inside the cave, including a land speeder with an auto cannon. They were in decent formation, too, coming out in support. Military training, I was sure of it. This was a problem. Out of the corner of my eye, I saw a hail of detonators raining down on the enemy. They went off in a staggered wave of explosions, doing a lot of damage to the random crates and cargo left on the landing pad. Dust settled and Squad 2 rushed down finding cover. There was only one shooter still hot down there. There was only one shooter still hot down there. And they put him down quickly. That speeder coming out of the cave was a combat model Seraph with a mounted blaster cannon that looked like an E-Web. It was going to cause problems. There were also four humans with E-22s flanking it. They were just past the entrance of a cave as the Twilik at the wheel fired off a few rounds from the pistol in his hand. Then they pulled wide, and the guy on the cannon primed his weapon. He was firing at the tower, and they were all so calm, the way they came forward, like this was nothing. The LT was still in the tower and hopping over. He was headed for the quad cannon, but he wasn't going to make it. Where was our Grenadier? Did she not see what was happening? She had a rocket launcher for this exact situation. I looked to my left and there she was, at the end of the line, past Tolan, just slumped back with her legs bent under her. She had this half-assembled RPS-6 beside her. I yelled at Tolan to shuffle down to get the thing together and tag the speeder. I'm on it! It was already out in the open and the cannon was making short work of the tower. Sparks and white hot metallic shards flying everywhere. The LT must have huddled down. Nothing else he could do. That quad cannon was shrapnel now. It fell off its mouth. 
the power coil flailing and sparks going everywhere as it swung wildly. Kator was still in support near the tower. He spun up his Z6 and managed to get off a few rounds in the direction of the speeder, but he was on the ridge and still in the open, exposed. Those guys with the E-22 saw the target and took it. Kator didn't last. When we found his body, it was hit six times. E-22s, man. Hell of a blaster. Squad 2 was still low and tight, moving closer to the cave entrance while sticking to cover, weaving their way through the debris and toppled containers. And they kept tossing detonators right at the speeder. Some of them hit their mark too, but that driver had it handled. He'd shoot straight forward, right towards our position, getting a safe distance from the blast radius. Then the detonators would go off, some of them blowing up inside the cave entrance. And that Twilik at the wheel was letting loose pot shots at Tolan's position. The turret shifted focus to squad two, holding them down. I yelled at Tolan, told him to hurry up, that that heavy cannon was gonna rip our guys to pieces. He was still having trouble getting it together, saying he just needed another second. Then he'd fire a rocket up that Twilik's ass. But then hell came down from above. With the whole area up in front of the cave, heavy fire from multiple cannons. That speeder was Adams. Those humans with the E-22s flanking it? Just a stain. I raised my arm to shelter my eyes because I had no clue what was happening. Then I looked up. It was a goddamn DX-9. An Imperial Tactical Transport. Stormtroopers. Talk about bringing a lightsaber to a knife fight. Those things are meant for breaching blockades. This was some naval officer swinging their dick around in our faces. Look at our new toy! The swivel cannons shifted to the cave entrance as the transport landed. Steady fire kept whatever was inside too terrified to make an exit. The transport itself barely fit on the landing pad. Then 30 shimmering buckets hustled off like we weren't even there. Headed right for the cave, formed up, and breached. Just like that. Heard a few shots come from inside, but we just sat there wondering what the hell was happening. None of us had even moved from our positions. Then the comms clicked in. Stand down, 79. It was Orto climbing down the side of the tower, as it looked like it was about to collapse. I looked at Sergeant Gentala, and she was already moving down to speak with the LT. He'd made it to the rear of the DX-9 and was demanding to know who sent these guys in a very aggressive manner. Some asshole in gray came out. Navy. You could tell by that pretty little hat he was wearing. Orto was pissed. And nothing this naval officer said seemed to calm him down. What a shit show. After a few minutes of us just... Sitting around, waiting to be told what to do, wondering what had just happened, the sergeants called us in, broke us up into patrol groups to survey the immediate area for survivors and inspect the wounded. All that. Most of us were just popping to back sticks and taking stock of ourselves, glad to be alive. We spent the next two hours doing whatever we were told, 
The sergeants were acting more like diplomats, keeping us in line and reminding the buckets that despite their status, they didn't have jurisdiction over us. Didn't seem to do much, but it was a nice attempt. We were still just their hired hands. At least we knew our NCOs had our backs. The LT had been having words with the Navy guy on the transport. He'd calmed down a bit and they seemed to be having quite a discussion. The sailor had an assistant, some guy taking notes. I guess they wanted an in-depth appraisal of what we'd seen. I learned all this later, of course. I never found out what Orto actually said. I've always wondered about it, though. He might have been honest, told them everything. He was bred for that sort of thing, but I half doubted it. These guys took his kill. I know things seemed dire, but that guy... As long as he was living, we would have taken that cave. We would have killed every one of those raiders, found the Kenyan, and called it in. It was inevitable. He willed victory out of us. He was made for that stuff, literally made, in a test tube, on Camino, with your tax dollars, I might add. The boys in white just did what they did. Took our prisoners and piled them onto the transport. We wouldn't be conducting the interrogations. Above our pay grade. That would happen aboard the Crossfire. The Buckets had us load up all the Kenyan for them, which was nice and not at all humiliating. And then they made sure to remind us that we were fortunate the Navy agreed to transport our dead and wounded back to Camp Phibus. Shockingly, we only lost three, but suffered ten wounded. Two of them from the initial barrage of the DX-9, mind you. Platoon 79 was now less than half strength. 29 from 60 when we set out in the morning. Since the Navy had a transport full of Kenyan 6-8, prisoners and our wounded, there was no room for the rest of us. We would be making our way back to the mine on foot. The stormtroopers would stay. They had to complete their investigation of the area, including the cave that we weren't even allowed to enter. Contained stuff too sensitive for knuckle-draggers like us mutters. But eventually, after all the humiliation, we formed up and marched back to the mine. There was a sense of relief to be going back. We filed back down the hills in the jungle, and when we reached the marshy plains leading to the mine, we formed a revised column. A lot closer than before, but still in our individual squads. The sun was down now. It was night. But the nights were a lot different than what I was used to. It was pretty with that nebula in the sky. I liked the extra visibility. After all, I was a bit rattled. I'd never had a day quite like that before. The march was good. We were mostly quiet. There was the occasional bit of chatter on the comms. The LT didn't seem to mind, didn't say anything anyways. I think he knew it was good for us. This was our first contact, after all. Pretty soon, the mine was ahead of us. It was lit up, spotlights on, and the hum of the gear running. Those guys didn't stop. Back at it, trying to find their fortune in the dirt. We saw a half dozen miners still on patrol near the perimeter, and Mondahai was with them. She'd made it back and got them to help transport the wounded, who'd already been flown back to the camp with the remnants of the Kenyan. I felt good, relieved like we were actually done. 
There was a few seconds, well, maybe a second, of feeling like we'd achieved some huge victory. The day was a success, or so I absentmindedly thought. What about Squad 1? Squad 1. Remember them? The guys shot out of the sky? They never arrived, despite the LT's assurances. No attempt at contact from the ship's transmitter either. Not good. As soon as we were inside the mine's fence, the LT asked to speak with the Trandoshan in charge. I had the distinct feeling our day was about to get longer. The sergeants had our medic, Husto, move in and inspect us. I asked him what was up, what to expect, but he didn't tip his cards. Love my pay grade, man. Now, how's your head doing? Any swelling? When the LT came back, he went straight to the sergeants who were mid-conversation with Husto. He just nodded at them, took a breath, looked us over and said, Listen up, 79. I'd expected Squad 1 to arrive by now, but as you can see that didn't happen. And before I call back to camp for a full evac, we will inspect the crash site for survivors. I know you're tired, so I'm only going to need 10 of you. Volunteers. Understood? The crash site wasn't that far, maybe an hour, and the last thing I wanted was to lose face. You don't ever want anyone in your unit to have the impression you don't have their back. Ever. I can't emphasize that enough. Never. I wasn't the first, but I put my hand up. The roster filled up quick. Of course, Staven was coming, Tolan too. Everyone raised their hand, even if they didn't want to go. Not everyone made the cut, though. Husto spoke with the LT, telling him who was in the best shape. It was going to be ten, only ten of us that went. We went in strong, though, two heavy gunners, each packing a Z6. Tolan was designated as a grenadier all of a sudden had an RPS-6 strapped to his back. Thing was assembled, too. We were learning. Orto wasn't taking any chances. He brought along Sergeant Hefspar from Squad 2 and Corporal Husto. Hefspar was Deveronian. The males are giant, goat-looking guys with horns. The females, like Hefspar, were huge. Only they had hair and no horns. Hefspar looked like she was about to pop. Not jittery or anything, but like a contained storm. She only seemed calm when bolts of blaster fire were zipping past her skull. We were going in quiet with no support. Our job was to find the crash site and look for survivors. We found anything too hot, we were supposed to call for backup. We needed help evacuating the wounded, we radioed Jintala and she'd come in with support on a ground transport on loan from the mine. As soon as we were outside the fence, our mouths were shut. Mood was a lot different than the country stroll we took back from the raider compound. Formation was different too. Both gunners up front with Hefspar. The rest of us in a broken line, trailing with a four meter gap between each. LT was in the middle, Tolan and Husto. I was second from the back, Staven after me. She was keeping an eye on our rear. LT picked her for that role on purpose. She was Keshian, had way better eyesight than the rest of us. The landscape around the mine was a muddy field. It had been forest at one point, but was now hacked apart, shrubs and light brush taking over the muck. We moved through at an even pace, step after step. Every snagging branch made a sound. It was quiet, but so loud. You listened for everything around you, the sounds of nature, 
everywhere. Things softened when we reached the actual woodland. That's where the transport went down, a click or two near the fringe. I tried to replay the crash in my head. I couldn't though. I watched it without even seeing what happened, you know? The details just weren't there. I had to assume the LT got a better look, and that he legitimately assumed some of them would have made it back to the mine. He'd spent the entire Clone War getting off and on lardies for one mission or another. He knew way better than I what they were like. At the time, I was just eyeing everything I could. The overgrowth blacked out most of the lights we got from the nebula, and we were ordered to engage our night vision goggles. It brightened things up, made me feel better. The image you got was hypertexturized, but at least you could see everything, including the giant two-foot-long peds weaving webs above us to trap birds or whatever else happened to get too close. These trees we were skulking through weren't the sturdy Everwoods I had back home. They were lighter, more like giant blades of grass, trunks that seemed almost pliable. Seemed. They didn't give like you'd expect. They grew pretty thick, too, so not much undergrowth. And the air was so still. Just a damp, hanging stink of rot. Boots slipping an inch down into spongy earth. Our formation tightened up, just a touch. Everyone got closer and we dropped lower. Then the gunners up front took a knee. We followed like dominoes. Shifted out a few meters. Staggered left and right. I was scanning my sector hard. Saw Orto shuffle up front. He must have reached the crash. I looked over and got the signal to fan out. We began our approach, slow and wide. Then I caught a glimpse of the lardy through the trees. There were no fires, though. I expected fires for some reason. The bulk of the transport was still intact, the hull altogether. Thing was on its side, too. My angle wasn't that good, but I kept seeing more detail as we got closer. One wing was gone, and it tore a good strip coming down, made its own clearing. We got in close and held tight, scanning for signs of life. Movement, anything, hostile or friendly, we just kept looking. No one saw a thing. A still quiet. You kept thinking someone was going to come out of the hull and wave. Then Hefspar was out like a shot. These deft, light steps. Precise, like she timed them getting to the side. Then hustled, got around the edge and looked in the hold. She was gone past the corner. I couldn't see her anymore but I heard her voice on the comms. Secure perimeter. We knew what to do. I turned left and was skulking through vegetation, looking for traps, shooters, anything hostile, really. You had to be slow and thorough. This was a great spot for an ambush. I came around the other side of the transport and was scanning the ground when I looked over at the wreckage. I saw the scorch of the wing joint, where it met the fuselage. The weapon must have ripped it right off on impact. Took a good chunk of the upper fuselage with it, too. I was thinking about what kind of weapon could do that much damage when my eyes scanned down. Hefspar was with the LT, and Husto, the corporal, kneeled down in front of some bodies. A line of them. Ours. Mutters. And none of them had any heads. 
I stopped in my tracks and had an urge to run over and get a closer look. I wanted to confirm it, even though I could clearly see these bodies were decapitated. Why would I want to see that? I don't think I really believed it, if that makes any sense. But I turned away, reminded myself, more like distracted myself, that the perimeter still wasn't locked up. I fell into autopilot mode, just dropped my head and kept walking, step by step, looking for wires, traps, shooters, pulse beams, anything. I kept going. I visualized pages from the training manual on improvised ordnance. Specific things to keep an eye out for. Tried to put the bodies out of my head, which just gnawed at me. Those bodies. Those bodies. All of them. Who does that? I heard a shuffle of steps up ahead. Soft. Eleven o'clock. They were trying to pick me off. They were undercover, though. A thick cluster of low-growth vegetation. Mumbai. That was our call sign. I called back with the proper response. Rishi. Two battles from the Clone Wars. A lot of small squad tactics employed in them. And we studied both relentlessly in training. The guy who called out was Altherium. I was relieved he didn't pick me off with a detonator before calling out. Our patrol had secured the perimeter. We dropped and held tight, but I couldn't stop thinking about those bodies. That stark image of them, all in a row. Patrol, convene on my position. Hefspar was by the side of the transport, so that's where we headed. All of us, slow, ethereal, like a bunch of phantoms. We fell back to the downed lardy. Murray was already there with Orto, who was on the wire again, probably putting in a call to Jintala to fire up the transport and give us a hand with these bodies. I got close to have a better look at the wreckage. The one wing was bent upwards, shredded on the ground. It left a trench. I studied the weapon impact too. A lot more details to see this close up. The scorching indicated a rocket. Excellent penetrative power. Whoever fired it knew what they were doing. They targeted this part of the transport specifically, the joint, and timed their shot. Precision hit. There was something on the side of the transport too, some symbol in paint. I knew it, I'd seen it before, but couldn't quite place it. I was going in for a better look when Staven tapped me on the shoulder. We're up. The two of us moved in and inspected the transport's interior. Everything was relatively intact. No signs of combat in the hold, nothing out of the ordinary. Cockpit was ransacked, though. Ripped apart. Central nav computer pulled out. Whoever did this wanted data and flight records. We checked the main storage core near the back, and sure enough, that was gone, too. This was a professionally executed operation which was no surprise given the weaponry and tactics we saw back at that compound. But why this shuttle? Just evening the odds? Staven and I came back out. Everyone was gathered around the bodies. I moved in too. The heads were gone. They'd been taken. Actually gone. When I first saw them during my patrol, I thought they'd still be there, but they weren't. And then I noticed something else that wasn't right. 
There wasn't enough blood on the ground. There should have been more, like a lot more. I blurted my observation out loud, well, just muttered it. Husto was still inspecting them and looked at me like I had the IQ of a lobotomized bantha. <sighs> Obviously. These are lightsaber wounds. Didn't you see the symbol on the side of the lardy? That's when it clicked. It was a Jedi sigil, written in blood, and it was on the side of one of our shuttles. I looked back at the scrawl, the wings, the lightsaber. Jedi? We held the position for close to an hour, and there wasn't much talking. We were all exhausted, but that wasn't it. I went through the rest of my tobacco sticks. I just lit the last one when I heard the whirl of grav lifts up above us. Then the lights. It was another DX-9 again. I guess Orto called in the Navy, which made sense. If there were Jedi killing Imperials, this was going to make its way up the chain. They landed close by. A bunch of crewmen got out and carried what looked like surveying gear, accompanied by some naval officers and stormtroopers. We were instructed to look away and then ushered on board by the LT. He and Hefspar were physically ushering us onto the ship like we were a bunch of children. As soon as that door closed, he took off his helmet and glared at us menacingly. That look. There was death in those eyes, like he was holding our lives in the balance. You will not speak of what you saw here tonight. Is that understood? I didn't understand it, but I wasn't about to question it. I thought we were going back to the mine and wait for our regular transport, but that didn't happen. We flew back to Camp Vibus. It was just us privates that got off, though. The LT, Sergeant Hefspar, and Corporal Husto stayed on board. They didn't even warn us. Once Tolan hopped off, the shuttle door swung back up behind him, and the grav lifts kicked in. Dismissed, I guess. They were taken up to the crossfire, debriefed by the brass, like the brass, Imperial Command, via holographic transmission. Murray was the one who told us this, later, much later. Always made it seem like he was giving us the hot scoop, which he was, when he could. He walked a fine line, and we all got that, but he told us that he wouldn't be surprised if someone at Coruscant was going to be in that briefing. Then he dropped another bit of intel, something that I was clearly too stupid to notice myself. One of the bodies was missing. Who stole the Kenny Inn? Did the miners play a part in it? And what happened to that downed lardy? That's next time on The Sigil. Thank you for joining me this week on Fearless Fred Presents Mud 79, a Star Wars fan fiction podcast. If you haven't already, make sure you follow the show so you'll never miss an episode. While you're there, don't forget to rate and review us. It helps grow the show and will make my contemptible harpy of a producer very happy. We're available for free at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, and wherever else you get your favorite streaming audio. You can also listen at CuriousCast.ca. Be sure to check out the show notes for more information and a full listing of Mud79's cast. 
If you want to reach out to me directly, you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at fearless underscore Fred or email me at mud79 at curiouscast.ca. This show is hosted and written by me, Fred Kennedy, and Dila Velasquez, the Harpy, our producer. Sound design is by moi, and final production is by Rob Johnson. And I'll see you next week for more Mud 79.